You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. To the Gospel of John. John chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 45 through 57. John 11, 45 through 57. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, have mercy on sinners, hopefully such as we see ourselves to be in this text. We have no right to Christ. We have sinned against your King and Lord. And yet you gave him for such sinners, precisely because they are sinners. To make them new with the life of the risen Lord for whose sins he died. 
And so, Father, send your spirit now. Warm our hearts. Melt them. Stir faith where there's nothing but doubt and rebellion. Strengthen faith. (laughs) May we not think anything of the rebellion of men, of kings and princes, but see our Lord's sovereign salvation and be at peace. In the strong name of Jesus we ask this. Amen. Bethany was a pit stop en route to Jerusalem. Jesus could stop at Lazarus' grave because he was going to his cross. When Jesus purposes to return, he doesn't say to the disciples, let us go to Lazarus or let us go to Bethany. He says, verse 7, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples understand by this, not initially, that Jesus is going to a dead man, but that Jesus is going to his death. That's why they respond, verse 8, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there Again, let us go to Judea again. Are you going there again? They're not thinking about a dead Lazarus. They're thinking about a dead Jesus. And even after Jesus explains, we're going to Bethany because Lazarus is dead. Thomas says to his fellow disciples, verse 16, let us also go that we may die with him. That expectation hangs in the air then whenever you're told. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, verse 17. Jesus is not returning to Judea simply to raise Lazarus. He's returning to Judea to lay down his life. If he were not going to the cross, he could not have stopped off at Lazarus' grave. The future is determining the past. The future light of the risen sun is casting light backwards over the cross and that shadow falling on Lazarus' grave is the very power with which Jesus can say, Lazarus, come forth. But now we'll see that the past also makes way for the very future that determines it. The raising of Lazarus prepares the road into Jerusalem and out of Jerusalem. The raising of Lazarus explains both the triumphal entry and the shameful walk to Golgotha. It tells us why it is that Jesus comes into the city as he did, why he leaves it as he did. The raising of Lazarus then prepares way for the laying down of his life. As we look ahead in our text, as we look into chapter 12, we'll see both why Jesus was welcomed as a Messiah and then crucified as an insurgent. Indeed, it was the very shouting of Christ that explains why they then soon shouted, Crucify. It's a shouting of, Son of David, 
and the triumphal entry that explains why they would cry out, crucify him. And you see this in the two different responses in the wake of Lazarus' wake and wakening. In the wake of, of Lazarus' death and resurrection, you have these two different responses, verse 45. Many believed in him, verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees. Some believed and some blabbed. Some trusted, some tattled. And while which of these makes way to go from the raising of Lazarus to the laying down of Jesus' life? Which one explains how we get from A to B? And the answer is both. And it's actually the believing more than the blabbing. It's the believing more than the blabbing that gets you from raising Lazarus to laying down Jesus' life. It's not the people's blabbing that terrifies the Jewish authorities. If all the Jews were blabbing, the Sanhedrin would have no problem with Jesus. It's their believing that terrifies them. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Whenever the Jews start to go out to Bethany, as we see in chapter 12, they're going out there not only to see Jesus, they're going out there to see Lazarus. And when they recognize this, we read 12, 10, and 11. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Whenever Jesus enters the city, we hear the Pharisees saying to one another, 12 and 19, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So how do we get from the grave to the cross? It's because of the blabbing and especially the believing. Now to that other party, the party, the blabbers. Do you find yourself asking, why would they do that? Jesus is la- he's raised a man from the dead, and they go and tattle on him as if he's done something bad to the religious leaders. Why would they do this? And the answer is because of the carrot and the stick. They want to curry favor with the Jewish leaders, and they want to avoid their judgment. At the Feast of Booths, about six months earlier, we read that Jesus' talk was being policed. 7 and verse 13, for fear of the Jews, their leaders, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And you might also recall the behavior of the parents of the blind man, whenever they were being questioned by the authorities, tells you something of the stick. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed That if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue, 922. So, that's the stick. What's the carrot? What's the inverse? These people are disciples of their leaders. Look at what we're told about some of the leaders in 1242 through 43. Nevertheless, many... Even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would 
not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They want to avoid shame and seek glory. That's their leaders. And the disciples chiefly don't learn a lesson. They learn the teacher. And they've learned this well. Why would they tattle? To avoid shame and to gain glory. The reason they told the Pharisees is the same reason you don't tell people. The same reason they tattle on Jesus is the same reason we so often don't tell of Jesus. We love the wrong kind of glory. And we fear the wrong kind of shame. We want to curry the favor of men, even wicked men, especially when they're in positions of prestige and power. We want to avoid the judgment of men, even wicked men, especially when they're in positions of prestige and power. This is why they tattled. This is why we don't tell. We need this Savior because we are these kind of sinners. We need Jesus like they do. Having been told what Jesus had done, the council then convenes. The Sanhedrin gathers, verse 47. The chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council. So this is the Sanhedrin, highest ruling court permitted by the Romans, made up of 70 members, the majority being comprised of Sadducees, who would be the priestly family, aristocracy, well-to-do persons, and then an influential minority being comprised of Pharisees, who were the majority religious force in the nation and had the greatest pull among the people. And they gather and they ask, what are we to do? And notice, they don't deny the signs. It's precisely because of the signs that they ask the question, what are we to do for this man performs many signs. What are we to do? And they just answered their own question. What are we to do? This man performs many signs. Signs signify. The signs tell them what they're to do. John 20, 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The, when they say signs, they're not ignorant of God's way of dealing with man from beginning to end. These are experts in the Old Testament. They know what signs function 
as in God's redemptive scope. They understand how the signs worked with Moses. They understand how the signs worked with the prophets. What are they to do? They're to believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's what they're to do. That's just been laid out within this very act. They're concerned. He's raised the dead. What are we to do? John 11, 23 through 27. Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She said that before the sign. And now it's after the sign and the Pharisees are asking, what are we to do? What are they to do? They're to repent and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And instead of thinking of taking His life, drawing life from Him. That's what they should do. Sinner, this sign, these signs, have been laid before you in the Gospel of John again and again. What are you to do? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive life in His name. They are actually afraid that the purpose of these signs will be realized. Verse 48. If we let Him go on like this, performing these signs, everyone will believe in Him. They're afraid that the signs will do the very thing the signs are meant to do. They're worried that it will lead to the elimination of their place and their people. Why are they afraid that people will believe? If they believe in Him, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So, they believe that Jesus is the Christ. See, they, they've got that much. Why are they worried about belief? Well, because they're believing in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David, who will deliver them from their enemies. And if the Romans get wind of that, they will come and try to quell that rebellion, and they will take away our place, meaning they will destroy the temple. And they will dismantle this nation. These words are humorous whenever you recall the words of the people in 833 in argument against Jesus. We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say we will become free? The leaders are under no such disillusion. They know they are enslaved and they fear the repercussions if people begin to believe broadly that Jesus is the Christ. Do you see how this casts shade on their hope, their faith in the hope of the Old Testament? The hope is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of David. And it terrifies them that it might actually be so. 
the potentiality of a Messiah terrifies them. The hope of the Messiah is impractical to them. They fear it. While they have no love for the Romans, they're comfortable under the Romans. Jesus threatens this comfort. Sinful man wants just enough religion to be comfortable in his sin. He wants a religion that will serve his selfish motives and ambitions and make him feel all right while he does so. This is why men do not believe in Jesus. They are comfortable in Roman occupation, as it were, under the bondage of sin. They're comfortable under their slave masters. Sinful men are comfortable in a dark world. Jesus is not safe. He is light. He exposes. Men may hate their slavery, but Jesus is a bigger threat. They, men want freedom to sin. Jesus only offers freedom from sin. So they don't want the deal. Men want to be able to sin comfortably. Jesus offers no such comfort. Jesus makes no room for you to sin freely, comfortably. Man hates Jesus, you see. Not simply because He dies on a cross. Not even simply because He dies on a cross for their sins. Some men might rebel against that if you really begin to push it, how, how deep of a sinner they are. But I don't even think there's the rub. It's not that there's one who dies for sin. It's that the one who died for sin demands that if you are to follow Him, you must take up your cross and follow Him. That the forgiveness He offers for sin is one in which you experience death to sin and rise anew to live unto righteousness. Roman subservience allowed for some self-expression, some self-freedom. Submission to Jesus has no such wiggle room. He demands king, him to be recognized as king of all. The Romans allow the Sanhedrin, you see, to carry on as they do. Jesus would not. Man fails to see, though, that submission to the Good Shepherd is life. It is freedom. And any other kind of submission, any kind of, you, you've got to serve somebody. And whoever you're serving, any other kind of submission is just one of death. Bondage. Slavery. Despite all their actions against Jesus, though, Everything they fear will come to pass in a matter of a few decades. They will come and take away our place and our nation. Eliminating Jesus did nothing to eliminate that threat. Indeed, eliminating Jesus is the reason a sovereign God brought that judgment on their nation. Sinner, the truth of who Jesus is is put before you in these signs. Don't plot. Don't calculate. Don't scheme. Don't think, what are we to do? I don't want to go to hell. But I want my sin too. 
Don't think of what you will lose if you come to Jesus. Think of what you'll lose if you don't. You'll gain nothing by not coming to Jesus. You'll lose everything you're trying to keep by not coming to Jesus. All that you're trying to hold on to is vanity. In Christ, there's not only blessedness, there is every blessedness. There is every blessedness eternally and secure and forever. You will gain nothing by your your refusal of Christ except the death you already walk in. That's all you will keep. You'll hold on to nothing else. Now next, in verses 49 through 53, we see Caiaphas' reaction to this. This is the dramatic and theological center of this text. Indeed, Michael Lawrence well states that in these verses, we come to the most ironic passage in a gospel that is known for being full of irony. It's been in John's gospel again and again. How often have we seen things that no one else involved is really seeing? There's just, John oozes with irony, and here it comes to a climactic expression. While we have seen a desire, though, to kill, stone Jesus again and again, arrest Him, kill, stone Him, while we've seen this, it appears by their behavior here, that it's largely been something that happens in the heat of a moment or in small discussions among groups. But this is perhaps the first time they've been so daring to make a formal kind of approach to the Jesus problem as a Sanhedrin as a whole. All their previous attempts of doing it unofficially have been unsuccessful. And it's in this moment that Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks both diabolically and divinely. Diabolically, what does Caiaphas intend by his words? You know nothing at all. What an example of leadership. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should, per- should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. What is he saying? He's saying, instead of we Jews standing beside Jesus as a Jew claiming to be the Messiah, instead of us standing beside Jesus and worrying what the Romans are going to do to us, let's stand beside the Romans and deal with Jesus. Why are we acting as though Jesus is a problem? Stand with the Romans. Jesus is not our problem. Jesus is our problem problem together with the Romans. So it is that they'll ultimately try him in their own court, convicting him of blasphemy so that the people will side with them. But when they bring him to a Roman court, it's the charge of insurrection that they bring before Pilate, even to such a point where they will say, we have no king but Caesar. This man says he's king of the Jews. Lawrence again writes, this is the scene. The judge of the world condemned by a corrupt court. The true high priest to be murdered by an unholy counterfeit. The Lamb of God 
sacrificed by the high priest as a political scapegoat. Caiaphas proposes an unholy alliance for unholy purposes. Sometimes it's said that pragmatism is the only philosophy native to American soil. Now, it's true. We made a science of pragmatism. We, in a formal sense, get credit for that as a philosophy. We've, we've made a bumper crop of pragmatism. But that lie is as old as the garden, and it can be seen again and again by its ugly fruit. We see it here. Caiaphas isn't principled. He's pragmatic. It is not heavenly holiness that's determining why he does what he does, but earthly expediency. And the irony is that pragmatism isn't pragmatic. Pragmatism as a philosophy isn't pragmatic. It isn't practical. It doesn't work. And that's because pragmatism concerns life under the sun. But life under the sun is vanity, vanity, all is vanity. In just a matter of a few years, Caiaphas and Pilate both would be deposed by the Romans from their positions. So in a few years, Caiaphas is gone. And in a few decades, the temple is gone. Pragmatism concerns life under the sun. Life under the sun is vanity. Caiaphas says to them, you know nothing. And then he goes on to speak words of which he, he knows nothing of what they really mean. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand, neither does he, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas has diabolically spoken from his own heart, and yet divinely, these words prophetically, perfectly say what is to happen. Michael Lawrence again. Caiaphas had declared that his fellow priests knew nothing. In fact, Caiaphas knew even less. Yet in a mocking judgment of the cynical political priest, God causes him to speak the very words that would explain what was going on. He causes him to speak words that were truer than he knew. The wicked rebellion of men only and ever serves to advance God's sovereign, good, and gracious purposes of redeeming a people to Himself. And it is a people not from this nation only, but from all the nations to gather all of God's scattered children. He did not say this of His own accord, but being high priest that year... He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Do you hear the echo of John 10 when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice and there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus dies this death so that sinners might have His resurrection life. And having it, come to the Father. Come to Him. By this injustice, the unjust will be made just. The righteous 
will die so that the unrighteous might live. This is the divine meaning of these words of which they're totally unaware. And that's why, though this truth has been spoken, yet from that day they made plans to put him to death. And their plans only serve to accomplish God's plans. Peter would preach on Pentecost. Acts 2, 22-24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. That God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by lawless hands. By lawless men. By the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Your plans only accomplished God's plans, even when you were rebelling against Him. Can you hear the laughter of Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. This is the divine joke of irony. That as they say, let's burst their bonds, they establish His redemptive rule and reign. Everything that He was about. The Lord holds them in derision. Jesus has just demonstrated by the sign that has them in such consternation. He demonstrates by that sign, I am the resurrection and the life. They gather, what are we to do? Kill him. He's the resurrection and the life. And their solution is to kill him. This is not going to end well. And yet, it does end well for such sinners. It was precisely this sin that God ordained to save sinners from their sins. If they would but turn to Him in faith. Sinner, look how vain and empty and pointless all rebellion against the sovereign Savior of men is. And see how mighty and how gracious the sovereign Savior is. This is a sovereignty that lays down his life for sinners that want to take his life. And if you will but believe in the sovereign Savior, stop walking in your vain ways. That mercy and grace is held out to you. Now look at the people's expectation in verses 55 through 56. We're told the Passover is at hand. Think of that in light of what you just heard. 
One laying his life down for the nation. The Passover is at hand. The celebration of the Passover. Whenever the firstborn. Not only of Egypt. But of the Hebrews. Would die. But for his people, God provided a lamb to die in their place. Because of the lamb, the nation didn't perish. And now, the Passover is at hand. The Passover is no longer to be something in their history, but something in their presence. The shadow is giving way to the substance. And as the city swells with Jews arriving ahead of time to purify themselves for the feast, they're looking for Jesus. Will He show Himself? It seems that the predominant answer is, He'll not come. Why do they say this? Well, because they picked up on all the same cues that the disciples did. If he came back, it would be for his death. And the the Pharisees aren't really trying to cover this up. Public announcement. These are their instructions from the Sanhedrin. The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. See that their stated purpose is to arrest him. We know that the plan is to kill him. The people, I think, are aware of this too. They've said this for two feasts now. Now, this is a peculiar request in light of all their earlier interactions. They bump into Jesus every feast. It's happened. Consider, though, how this makes sense of Jesus' withdrawing of Judas's betrayal, why it is that they come and arrest Jesus in the garden. They want to see Jesus executed in public, but before that happens, they want to arrest him in private. They want to arrest him in secret, try him in private, because of all those earlier interactions where the crowds are swayed by him, where he does some kind of sign, where he just seems to escape their hand and disappear into the masses, as he has time and time again at the feast whenever the city is swollen. So they want to know where he is, so they can arrest him in secret, try him in private, and then, after they've got all that secured, then see him executed publicly. And it's likely then you see this very order that would later prompt a disgruntled disciple in Judas to come to them exactly as he did with the information that he did and why it is you see Jesus betrayed and exposed as he is in the garden. And the irony again is that this diabolical plan is all part of the divine plan. The raising of Lazarus, do you see, makes way both for then the triumphal entry and the shameful walk to Golgotha. 
The raising of Lazarus made way for the cross, and thus it made way for our raising as well. Because Jesus died and rose, there is salvation for such sinners. Saints, this is your sovereign Savior. He's not just a Savior for sin. He is a sovereign Savior over sin to save you from your sin. You trust a sovereign Savior. So hopefully faith is is being doubled He saved me from my sins. He's my Savior. And He will save me from sin. In every way, He is a sovereign Savior. Sinner, the Lord of heaven and earth stands ready to save you. Cease from your vanity. Cease from your fear of man. Cease from your seeking glory from man. Cease from trying to hold on to this world and your sins that's passing away. It's all vanity. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and find find all your blessedness in Him who is altogether lovely and without flaw. He is sovereign He is Savior, and He is the splendor of all perfections. Man has sinned, and Christ has died. Oh, the divine irony of salvation, that man has sinned, and Christ has died, that sinners might find forgiveness and grace and be reconciled to Him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you who deserve only death for your sin will find life in the Savior. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for having the last laugh, the loudest laugh over the sins of men, not as we deserve in simple judgment, but in a grand judgment that results in our not simply being acquitted, but counted just before you with the righteousness of Christ who died in our stead. How awesome are your ways. Forgive us of our little faith. Build it now by your word. And stun sinners right now into salvation with the sight of Christ. Crucified. And risen. Kindle faith in hearts. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.